Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you again for your company. Now remember, tell your friends it's easy to watch Alan Jones. Just go to the website, adh.tv. The Watch Now button is at the top, and it's all there, live and on demand, and it's free. And you can email me, come on, Jones at adh.tv, Jones at adh.tv, to have your say on any topic we raise on the show. Tonight, I'll be speaking to the very sensible Queensland Senator, Matt Canavan. He seems to be a lone voice when it comes to fighting this net zero nonsense. It's called political courage, I think. Not too many people have it. Matt Canavan does. And what about the news that the Teal Independent in outgoing Minister Greg Hunt's seat of Flinders has pulled out? She's a state school teacher and was only just made aware that her job means she's in contravention of Section 44 of the Constitution, holding an office of profit under the Crown. Despie O'Connor released a statement where she said, amongst other things, and I quote, let me be clear, I've been on leave without pay for more than 18 months. I've not been making a profit from the Commonwealth. I'm employed by the Victorian Department of Education, a state body. She went on, this clause does not apply to those working in private sectors, including teachers at private schools, despite the fact that private schools receive significantly more funding than do public schools, unquote. Now, look, this is a very valid point. Just put your political differences aside. 
And the fact that she's a teal independent, forget that. I hate the term, by the way. But the rule she has articulated does not pass the pub test. Are you telling me that a public school teacher or a public health nurse or an emergency services worker who wishes to put a hand up and represent their community in the national parliament is barred from doing so unless they resign their current employment? Time to change the rules. But if Ms O'Connor works as a teacher from a private school, it'll be all OK. I don't think fair-minded Australians think that is fair. What do you think? Email me, Jones at adh.tv. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, that said, where are we at week's end with a fortnight to go? I've spoken to Josh Frydenberg and Peter Van Onselen about matters in the economy. The Bill Clinton line resonates. It is the economy, stupid. But one wonders, one wonders whether both political parties don't think we are stupid. My job is to tell you things as they are, not as we would like them to be. If you are to believe what you read, the two major election issues are the economy and national security. I'll be looking at national security issue next week with Peter Dutton. But what about the economy? The Morrison government via Josh Frydenberg were fully justified in borrowing money to cover the temporary measures that, to some extent, saved lives and businesses and jobs during the pandemic. But how do we justify tax cuts and the massive spending that continues to take place in this election campaign and, before that, the federal budget? And then the Victorian budget spendathon brought down this week. So far in this campaign, the Coalition have promised $3.05 billion, Labor $4.03 billion. Who pays for this? No one's got the guts to say to voters, well, look, you're going to have to pay for the services that you demand. Instead, here we are, two weeks out from voting day, offering an unfunded cut in tax way down the track, which will add to the deficit, and spending, which adds to the debt. Voting government out of office and Labor into office isn't going to help, and nor do we help. We're the voters. Why don't we tell our members, our political parties, that this stuff is contrary to the national interest? I see that Chris Richardson from Deloitte Access Economics says there is an ongoing structural deficit. That is, the stuff that's promised and is there forever. NDIS, aged care, health care, but includes the tax cuts for July 2024. The structural deficit is as high as $40 billion. That is, it's built in. It's there forever. The tax cuts, more than $21 billion a year. This is a stage three tax cuts announced in 2018 for something seven years down the track. Since then, we've had a damn pandemic. Which leader is going to say, look, we can't afford all of this? Or will some of it be paid by a tax hike? You see, come July 1 next year, the low and middle income tax offset expires. So the notion promised by the Prime Minister that there'll be no new taxes means he's not being upfront with voters. How can the government guarantee that taxes will not increase when 10 million households face a higher income tax bill from July 1 next year when the low and middle income tax offset expires? Then, of course, the fuel tax relief. It's temporary. It's meant to come off in September. Who in government will have the guts to admit they'll double the fuel tax from September? 
So removing the tax offset will mean, according to the Bank West Curtin Economic Centre, that all households earning less than $90,000 will pay more in tax when the low and middle income tax offset expires on July 1 next year. Are they going to vote for the government? My point is this. The government says no new taxes if the coalition's re-elected. Labor would have you believe the same, but neither party has committed to extending the low and middle income tax offset or the fuel excise cut. So do we keep borrowing heavily to cover this mountain of debt? Both parties have racked up so far together over $7 billion in promises in this election campaign. So far. Who will dedicate themselves to making sweeping cuts in government spending or persuading the electorate that they must pay for this extravagance? Or do we leave it to kids to pay down the track? Voting a government out of office because of its mountain of debt won't solve the problem. You may be swapping it for an opposition which threatens to spend more. How on earth could any government continue with the 2018 budget promise of stage three tax cuts seven years into an unknown future? A pandemic comes upon us and there's not even the remotest consideration of saying, look, I'm sorry, we can't afford them. So forget the argument that there'll be no tax increases. Taxes will increase. And for households earning less than $48,000, they'll get nothing from the stage three tax cuts, but will face higher taxes when the tax offset expires. Indeed, there are some suggestions that two thirds of taxpayers earning less than $90,000 will be worse off when the low and middle income tax offset expires on July 1 next year. Labor has said it'll crack down on multinational tax avoidance. Good luck. That will have no effect on income tax paid by households, regardless of their annual income. The question is, when do we all face the reality that we're living beyond our means? And if we're to save our children from unconscionable levels of debt down the track, my generation should cop some pain. A real political leader would get into the ring and explain this to the electorate. And I believe the electorate would be thankful that someone is clearly and simply telling us the truth. Well, now the next segment we'll be featuring every week. And as that wonderful intro suggests, it'll be question time. Not always question time as it applies in the federal parliament, but rather in the House of Commons, where in particular, with Prime Minister's question time, the Prime Minister alone takes all the questions. And that's the fate tonight of the Liberal Senator from Queensland, James McGrath, our next guest, and our first guest on Question Time. James McGrath has been immersed in politics longer than I care to remember. Yes, some people will recall on election night in 2016, James and I had an interesting and energetic verbal engagement. But as people who know both of us would know, the past is the past. James McGrath has outstanding knowledge of the Liberal Party across the country. And that is why he's our first guest on Question Time to try and assess where things stand now two weeks out and address some significant issues. Before we get to that, James is also, I must tell you, the Deputy Government Whip in the Senate, but importantly, the Chairman of the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters. Now, pre-polling begins on Monday. Let's bring in James from Brisbane, where he's at Liberal National Party headquarters, born in Toowoomba, lives in Warwick. James, thank you for your time. 
Look, looking back, that was quite a sparring night in 2016. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, I I feel bad about it, Alan. You you know that. But um, it was a a bad night and based after a couple of years of bad decisions. Good entertainment. Good entertainment. Look, to serious matters, simple question, James. Will this be a fair election? Um. I don't think it is going to be a, a fair election from the, the perspective of the Liberal National Party in terms of the challenges from the the, the populist right and and the left and, and the broadstream media. So we're up against it. Mm. Uh, we're, we're sort of almost like Robertson Crusoe by ourselves fighting for our values and our beliefs. So from that perspective, no, it's not going to be now, a fair election. Well, what about pre-polling? Uh, there are specific rules re-pre-polling. They're never enforced. Do you know anyone who votes before Election Day who has ever asked if they were entitled to vote early? That is, uh, will you be outside the electorate where you're enrolled? Will, will you, uh, are you more than eight kilometres from a polling place? Uh, will you be travelling on voting day? Uh, will you be unable to leave your workplace to vote? Um, are you due to give birth? Uh, do you have a religious belief that prevents you from attending a polling place? Um, are you a silent elector? That means you're on the roll, but there's no address. And then this lovely catch-all. Do you have a reasonable fear for your safety? James, shouldn't polling day be polling day? And if people don't want to vote on May 21, shouldn't they have to prove that they meet the criteria that enables them to vote early? Uh, exactly. And, and indeed, it, it's not just criteria, it's it's legislated criteria yes. that's in the governing legislation. And, and one of the recommendations of the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters was that the Australian Electoral Commission needs to enforce these criteria, but not just enforce the cri- criteria. Um, as part of their advertising campaign, the AEC do spend a lot of money on, on the on the, the pre-election advertising, uh, remind people that they cannot pre-poll vote unless they meet those criteria. But you're correct. No one's ever asked that, those questions. They just handed over the ballot paper. Unbelievable. Let's talk about fair elections again. Your government, in order to improve public confidence in elections and reduce the risk of fraud, wanted to bring Australia into line with other liberal democracies. The Morrison government's legislation was simply that we should produce an ID at the polling booth. You need an ID to buy grog. You need an ID to open a bank account. For a driver's licence, you've got to produce everything, birth certificates, a lot. But isn't this more crucial than any of that? but you don't have to prove who you are. It's far more crucial. It's the most important act that any citizen can can undertake in a given period, and that is determining who is going to be the government of of their state or of our country. And the recommendations that the Joint Standing Committee made and the government adopted were very, very basic. You could use your Medicare card. You could use an electricity bill. It was not about stopping people from voting. It was about ensuring that those who did vote were entitled to vote and they had a form of ID to to justify that vote. But but Labor and Anthony Albanese said that such legislation, I'm quoting exactly, requiring us to produce an ID was, quote, a desperate attempt to undermine our strong democracy and deny Australians their basic democratic rights. This is a cynical move to minimise the number of Indigenous Australians who get the vote. James, an ID? What? Uh, and this is how outrageous uh, the, those slurs were on us because they did. I was called a racist. The government was called a racist for wanting all Australians, regardless of, of, of their colour or their creed, to have a form of ID. But what we did say and what the government legislation reflected was that those in, 
are Indigenous Australians in remote communities who may not have ID that their identity could be vouched for. And anyone who actually didn't have ID could be issued with a declaration vote until their identity had been ascertained. So very simple, a a, a safeguard to protect all Australians. But what this says to me, Alan, is the Greens and Labor... Yep. Are up to something. Are up up to to something something. here. And and let's prove our point. Now, Malcolm Turnbull got over the line by the width of a cigarette paper in 2016. Three months after that, in July, three months after that election, which he won, as I said, by the width of a cigarette paper, the Sydney Morning Herald reported this, and I quote, more than 18,000 people have been asked to explain why they apparently voted more than once at the federal election despite heavy fines and the risk of jail time for multiple voting. Now, listen to this. Two people were marked off the electoral roll 11 times on July 2, voting day. A further two people had their names marked off five times. Four others had four marks and 51 people had three. James, what's been done about all of this? Up to 18,343 people were asked why their name was checked off more than once. Well, the answer is bugger all, but it's actually scarier than you outlined there, Alan, in that the federal seat of Herbert, which we lost by 37 votes, there were 200 cases of multiple voting in that seat. And the AEC uh, made the decision not to prosecute anyone. Uh, So the the ball is, is firmly in the quarter of the AEC, but what the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters have recommended is not just a unique voter ID, but something that's called the electronic certified list, which is, you know, a bit of a gobbledygook for yeah. just saying the electoral roll should be um, electronic. It's not it's Absolutely. not electronic voting. It's an electronic roll. So once, um, you know, Alan Jones votes, your name gets Go marked off. Gone. Absolutely. And that stops... Yeah, yeah and but if I mean, the if, real 12, Alan if, 12 Jones, people, if 12 people voted in James McGrath's name, they got no hope of finding who these other 12 people were. I mean, there were 6,760 instances of multiple voting in New South Wales. 4, 000, this is in the Turnbull election. 4,800 in Victoria, 2,792 in Queensland. I mean, this is all going to happen again, and we really don't know whether the government that will be elected is the government that is entitled to govern. Can I just come back to you this issue about... Inflation now, high inflation, gap in wages, interest rates going up, uh, underlying inflation, which is about the things we buy uh, in the grocery shop, the, the things we can't afford to do without. Who's this going to affect at the polls? Which, is this going to affect government? Rightly or wrongly, they tend to blame government, don't they? They do tend to blame the government, and, and Scott Morris at the moment is getting the blame for, for everything from uh, you know bushfires to floods to people oh, yeah. losing socks in the washing machine, yeah, which, which is which is unfair. <laughs> and and, and the, those premiers, the, those 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 buggers who are premiers are, are certainly playing political games. So the government will be held accountable for our economic management over the last three years. So we've got to own what is happening. But you know, my case to you and, and to your, your viewers this evening is that we got Australia through COVID. Uh, we got through you know, this pandemic, that the worst pandemic in 100 years. Uh, you and I will probably talk a bit about spending, which I think we're probably on a unity ticket there. Yeah. Um, so we've got to take the good, the good with the bad there mm. in terms Just of... Just on spending what? then, James, uh, spending accelerates inflation. More money in circulation, chasing fewer goods, and price goes up. That's why there's a high housing crisis. The prices have gone up, all sorts of incentives to the buyer, but the states, 
The states are responsible for the supply of housing stock and there's not enough housing stock. How's this issue going to pan out? Spending. Well, uh, spending in terms of, let's look at housing. You're so right about the state's control housing supply. I mean, just look here in Queensland, where, where Kate Jones was running against Campbell Newman back in 2015, she she was going on, on the one of her issues in the city of Ashgrove was stopping uh, housing developments uh, and then came into government and stopped the housing developments happening, not just in Ashgrove, but across Queensland. Uh, th this is an issue we're to deal with in terms of, of not just the inflation of goods going up, but what's happening with people's wages. Yeah, uh, I reckon if the government went to the nation, if Scott Morrison went to the nation and said, listen, i got bad news, but I, you want me to tell you the truth, we're living beyond our means, and we are going to, you elect us, and we will cut expenditure to make sure that our lives in the future are more affordable and more beneficial. And I reckon people would like the, like the, the uh, Catherine Deves issue, the voters that support the government, out there, 90% of them say, girls must be playing against girls. I mean, I think they have very powerful points out there in the electorate. I think being an economic conservative has become unfashionable, and, and that, that upsets me. You and I and others who will come on your, your program all believe, as we live within our budgets, the government should live within, within its own budget. And I think it's been a failure of government across Australia that we just think this is a magical money tree at the bottom of That's the garden. Good on you. And, and, and we've done, the government's done some very good things during COVID, but COVID has also provided an alibi for poor government spending at a, at a state. Very good point. And sometimes at, at, at a federal level. Very I can good say point. that as, as a backbench. Let's just but quickly... They're very good point. Let's just quickly, before we go, and we're running out of time, but with your knowledge of the coalition around the country, have a very quick whip around uh, how you see things. WA? Uh, WA, you're going to get the Mark McCown bounce there. It's, it's going to be very tight in the seats of, of Swan and, and, and Pearce. South Australia? Uh, Boothby, once again, going, going to be very tight. Um, I'm told that, that Sturt should, should be OK. Tasmania, Bass and Braddon? Uh, the, the preferences, decisions of Jackie Lambie and One Nation will, will play, play there. Uh, I think both those seats will be very tight, but we should hold them. Victoria? Uh, really interesting here. Some interesting things happening in those Labor seats. Daniel Andrews is on the nose. Um, if we had lots of money, you'd be spending on Hawke. But, yeah, Karangamite and Dunkley um, are in play. New South Wales? Oh, God knows. Like, uh, just New South Wales drives me nuts. Uh, and those teals, we've forgotten about the teals oh. and the damage they're causing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they're a bunch of fakes and liars. So th there's a caveat there. But, you know, people keep talking about Shortland as an interesting seat. What's happening in the Hunter? So, you know, people shouldn't be slitting their wrists. This election is all to play for. Good on you. Great to talk to you, James. And we'll try and talk again before uh, May 21. But thank you for the insights. You're spot on. You're spot on. I mean, what James is making the point, the coalition has to hold every seat it has and win one. So there we are. That's James McGrath, a Queensland senator who knows his stuff. Well, it was always going to happen, wasn't it? The so-called independent South Australian candidate in the seat of Boothby, Joe Dyer, who you might remember had plenty to say about Christian Porter, nothing favourable, is now facing questions on her own eligibility to run for parliament. Boothby in South Australia is the state's most marginal seat. Dyer has dual British citizenship. But listen to this. She says she applied to rescind her British citizenship before she announced her candidacy, but it's yet to be processed. Apparently, the British government had informed her that the application would be delayed by several months due to COVID. 
But here's the key point, is it not? In her qualification checklist, Ms Dyer had reportedly declared that, quote, the date of losing foreign citizenship, unquote, was December 8 last year. But there's no evidence that her application to Britain's Home Office has been processed. No evidence the citizenship has been revoked. No evidence that she's lost her foreign citizenship, as she apparently has claimed. She's reportedly declared that, quote, the date of losing foreign citizenship was December 8 last year. Should she be disqualified on two fronts? The fact that if her application to revoke British citizenship hasn't been processed, she is surely still a dual citizen. But perhaps of more importance, did she tell the truth when she said the date of losing foreign citizenship was December 8 last year? Just away from that, there's another concerning point to contend with when I alluded this week to the fact that the Morrison government has a veritable mountain to climb. The latest news poll this week had the coalition primary vote at 36%. In the last federal election, which Mr Morrison described then as a miracle, the coalition's primary vote was 41.4. When previous to Mr Morrison, Turnbull won in 2016, as I said earlier, by the width of a cigarette paper, the coalition primary vote was 42%. Remember, it's now 36 the much-maligned Abbott, who won 25 seats from the Labor Party in 2010 and 2013, secured a primary vote in 2013 of 45.6%, but still had to suffer the dishonest assertion that he's not popular. 45.6% primary vote in 2013. The coalition figure on the latest news poll is 36, almost 10 percentage points behind what Abbott achieved. When Abbott was denied the prime ministership in 2010, when two MPs representing wholly conservative electorates, Windsor and Oakshot, supported Labor, the Abbott coalition vote was 43.3%. These are the maths. Only twice in the 26 federal elections since 1949, in October 1998 and May 1954, has the coalition primary vote been below 41%. And only eight times since 1949, that's 73 years ago, only eight times has the coalition primary vote been below 44%. It's now 36. Never mind miracles. If you want to continue the biblical illusion to win this election, the coalition will need more than a miracle. As things now stand, and they may change, but to win this election, the coalition will veritably have to turn water into wine. Well, now look, for how many more elections do we have to endure this unresolvable nonsense about climate change. I venture to say when the left, sadly mirrored by some in government, talk about net zero emissions, many of them couldn't tell us what these emissions are and where Australia figures in the problem. Forgive me, but I'm not going to help them. But a couple of things need to be said before I talk to one of the people smart enough to understand all of this, Senator Matt Canavan. First is we talk today, fossil fuels, in particular coal and gas, satisfy 83% of primary energy demand around the world. The second point, while we pursue this selfishness of trying to obliterate coal from the equation, more than 600 million people in Africa have no access to electricity at all. 78% of those who do satisfy their energy needs do it by humanity's oldest renewable fuel, wood. Of course, in the ideological indulgent West, people like the then US President Obama hosting a summit of African leaders in 2014, said he envisaged Africa being dotted with solar panels and wind turbines. The African leaders told him they wanted more fossil fuels. Indeed, the Tanzanian Minerals and Energy Minister said, 
we'll start intensifying the utilisation of coal. Why shouldn't we use coal? He said, when there are other countries where their carbon dioxide per capita is so high, we'll just go ahead. You then have people like the CEO of Macquarie Bank on a salary of millions telling us that the coal industry is on its way out. On the same day, people in the game like Coronado Global Resources were telling us that coking coal prices have risen by 24% and they reported record quarterly revenue. I mentioned the other night that the Institute of Public Affairs had done some outstanding research work on this, demonstrating that coal and gas investments, both fossil fuels, in the Hunter region alone are expected to produce 22,000 jobs, 7% of the region's labour force, injecting $12 billion into the region, equivalent to a fifth of its current gross regional product. Go net zero, as advocated by these left-wing loonies, all that's foregone. Can I urge them to check with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, where resource revenue last year to Australia, export revenue, was $351 billion, 351,000 million, up 21% on the previous record set in 2019. In fact, resources contributed 68% of Australia's total export revenue last year, and of that, coal contributed 62 billion, up 43% from 2020. If you go to North Queensland, the net zero impact will be even more severe. Resource projects in the pipeline up there would create 125,000 jobs, 36% of the current workforce. Net zero will cost us. Australia, close to 300 billion in unrealised economic activity and over 478,000 jobs. How do you replace this revenue? Well, the only person I can see warning of this crisis prior to May 21, if we're voting for Australia's future, is Senator Matt Canavan. He joins me and typically of him, have a look at the picture. Where are you, Matt? <laughs> I'm just outside air uh, here, uh, uh, Alan. Uh, great, great part of the world, Burdekin region, uh, produces uh, lots of wealth for our country. And it's just next door to the beautiful Great Barrier Reef, which is in great shape if anyone wants to come visit. Good on you. They want a shifting from coal to gas, both are fossil fuels. Well, that's right, Alan, although some, some out there want us to get rid of all of that and yeah. go back to some kind of stone age. Uh, we need energy and clearly everybody needs energy. You just have to look uh, to Europe today and the mess that they've got themselves into. Uh, the German government uh, over the past decade has spent over 250 billion Australian dollars on green energy, the so-called Energiewende uh, program, and they've become more dependent on Russian gas and coal over that period than they were before. Uh, now, of course, they're in a desperate straits because they want to reduce their dependence on Russian coal, oil and gas, but they don't have a lot of alternatives because their banks haven't been financing coal mines here in Australia and we don't have extra just to give them overnight. And now we have the absurd consequence where we're all trying to stand against the aggression we see from Putin's regime, yet Western Europe is paying Russia a billion euros a day uh, for coal, oil and gas. A month into the invasion, they'd, they'd tallied up 35 billion euros in payments and they provided uh, Vladimir Zelensky and the Ukrainian government a mere 1 billion euros. So oh Western Europe, for all their rhetoric, for all their so-called unity, they're actually paying Putin 35 times more than the assistance they're providing and, uh, and, to the Ukraine and uh, what today. Have you... And that's all a consequence of these net zero ESG yeah. policies uh, mm. that have bankrupted Western Europe. And they'd have us believe, of course, that they were fighting Putin, funding the man they allegedly are fighting. Just let's come to Labor. They want to cut emissions by 43% from 20, 2005 levels. 
and that's by 2030, that's in, what, eight years' time, net zero by 2050. The coalition wants to cut emissions by 26 to 28%, not Labor's 43 by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Why is the government on the same unity ticket as Labor? Well, there is a difference here, Alan. There is a difference. Look, of course, I, I, I would like to see us uh, not sign up to these international agreements that uh, commit us uh, to commit the same sort of economic suicide that Europe has gone through. But there is a key difference between the Liberal National Parties and the Labor Party this election. The Labor Party does want to impose a carbon tax, uh, a new form of carbon tax to meet that 43% uh, reduction. Uh, they are going to take the 215 businesses around the country. They're our iron ore mines, our gold mines, our gas facilities, our coal mines, our last two oil refineries, as well as what's left of heavy manufacturing in this country, and put a carbon tax on it by requiring those businesses to buy more and more carbon credits every year. And Alan, when you make somebody do something and make somebody buy something, that's a tax. That's what the Labor Party want to do. Now, well, in my view, that's exactly the wrong thing we need right absolutely. now. Given the, the uncertain times. We need to be making money. We need to be supporting business. And we don't need a tax on mm. things like our last two oil refineries right now. I, I, I just want to come to that in a minute. Just one question. Labor claims its climate plans will create 604,000 jobs and spur $76 billion of investment. Now, surely this is Alice in Wonderland stuff. Well, and what they do is they say, when you buy these carbon credits, uh, you're going you're gonna to go and plant a lot of trees in, on pastures like these behind me, and there'll be jobs, apparently, in planting trees. Of course, once the trees are planted, there's no more jobs. They're temporary. They're a sugar hit. And they're not like the sugar behind me, which actually provides ongoing jobs uh, for a region. And, and look, uh, Alan, I, I just think this is so mad. I mean, we have a situation right now in the world. I mean, just look around the world. There were food riots in Indonesia a couple of weeks ago. There were food riots in Peru three weeks ago. Some poorer countries around the world are struggling to feed themselves because of the increased prices for fertiliser and food, which is a direct consequence of Europe's policies around the Ukraine. And now, now we're going to come up with a policy that pays farmers, like here in the Burdekin, uh, to stop growing food and plant trees instead and make food prices even more expensive and the world less secure. Uh, what we should be doing right now is encouraging more farming, encouraging food production, because that's the greatest thing we can do for humanity, not just here in Australia, but around the world. That's why the Liberal National Party, again, a big difference, are building the Urana Dam just west of here in Collinsville, the Hell's Gate Dam, where I'm just on the Burdekin River here, upstream is the Hell's Gate Dam. And we just announced today uh, $80 million to build a pipeline from here, from the Burdekin to Bowen, and open up another 40,000 hectares of farmland there. That's the difference between the Liberal National Parties and the Labor Party. The Labor Party wants to shut down farming, shut down farming industries. Uh, whereas we want to grow and develop those industries because we believe in farmers, we believe in farmland, and we believe that's the best way to make our country stronger. Just come back to this final point about the tax on 215 of our major company, the major companies in this Australia, and explain that in Australia, and explain that again. Well, what, uh, Alan, what uh, the Labor Party doing here is setting up a new form of carbon trading Definitely. scheme. They've tried this for the last decade. The Labor Party have failed at every election, and now they're trying to sneak this in. Uh, through a very technical means, which uh, they hope people won't understand. Uh, what they're going to do is, for those 215 businesses, is reduce the amount of emissions that they're allowed to make. Yep. They're going to have to buy a licence to uh, reduce to, to emit in this country. And they're going to reduce that by 5 million tonnes a year. Uh, if you go over your allowed, allowed uh, amount of emissions, you'll have to buy carbon credits. That, of course, will cost money. This will be millions and millions of dollars of extra cost on our mining sector, on our manufacturing sector, on things like our last two oil refineries. And that will flow through to the cost of goods. It will flow through to jobs. 
uh, throughout our economy. And as I say, right now, given the inflation, where it is at, given the economic uncertainty around the world and the geopolitical security issues in our region. Why do we need a new tax on our manufacturing industries and mining industries which make the wealth for this nation? Well, just the Labor Party hasn't outlined a co coherent reason for why we need to do that and that's why they shouldn't be elected. None, absolutely. Just before you go, why has the Business Council of Australia, which I would have thought should be supportive of business, as the name suggests, rejecting, why are they rejecting the coalition argument that this is a carbon tax and say Labor's proposed changes to the safeguard mechanism could offer the right incentive to drive investment, deliver more jobs and meet our net zero commitments? How any of these things are going to be achieved? Well, Alan, I, I can't read people's minds, but I'll, I'll give you two facts which might indicate yep. why the Business Council supports it. Number one, uh, this, uh, this new tax only captures uh, those, uh, those businesses which directly directly create emissions. If we actually counted indirect emissions, three of our four banks would be included in this list and they have to pay yeah. a carbon tax. But of course, uh, under this uh, modern Labor Party, they forget the working class and they give a loophole to the major corporate sector and our mm, banks. So they love point. it. And the second reason, Alan, is the second reason is guess who is going to make a lot of money trading these carbon credits? You got it. Our big banks. They love it. They love carbon trading schemes because it's another form of business, another line of business that they can make. Uh, make it make a commission on uh, and make bigger bonuses and that's why the big banks are all behind this and I've got a simple rule if something is very good for the big banks in this nation it probably means it's not very good for you <laughs> and keep in mind the modern the modern labor party the modern labor party here they're no longer representing the workers this new form of carbon tax is a working class tax it's a tax on the people who work in our mines in our factories on our farms that's who will pay this tax wonderful just outstanding i never get tired of telling this bloke He's a star on the Australian political firmament. And there he is out in the middle of a field at air. Great to talk to you, Senator Matt Canavan, and we can't talk to you often enough. Thanks for your time tonight, nonetheless. Isn't that an extraordinary exposition? Anytime, Alan. Thanks, You'll mate. notice the bloke standing there with not a note in his hand. Not a note in his hand. Knows the scene backwards. I just wish people in government had listened to him. Well, each week at this time, we'll have a look at the world of sport with one of Australia's most respected and, dare I say, experienced and knowledgeable sports commentators, Cameron Williams. He joins us for the first time. Cam, good evening. Thank you for your time. Let's get into it. Where do we start? The Grand Rugby League Grand Final is going to stay in Sydney, is it? It is. It is. That is a handshake deal that's been decided today, Alan. And this affects, of course, everyone in Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne and Brisbane who thought they might get to go and see an NRL Grand Final in their own backyard. That will not happen for the foreseeable future because Peter Volandis from the Rugby League has shaken hands with Dominic Perrottet from the New South Wales Premier's office and they've decided that they will spend $800 million, Alan, refurbishing some local grounds that badly need the refurbishment. Brookvale, Leichhardt, Shark Park. But there's a new stadium at Penrith that is on the books and... I thought frankly, they had a good stadium already. Well, they do. It needs a lick of paint. Yeah. Uh, it could probably use some uh, refreshed parking facilities, but it's what, a great facility. What do you think the taxpayer will say? I'm thinking of flood victims when they read that, you know, there's flood victims up there who've got nothing and 800 million on sports stadia. 
Well, I, I think that a lot of people will feel very sorry for those people in those positions. We've got teachers wanting more money for a start. The, the thing is that we don't actually need a new stadium out there. And the allocation of funds from governments is a mystery to everybody. But I do think it seems a little bit greedy in this instance. Look, Peter Volandi walked away from this deal saying both parties were unhappy. He says that's the hallmark of a good deal. But look, I, I don't think the rights to hold the NRL grand final in Sydney should be enshrined. Mm. I, I mean, we don't have people marching in the streets to take uh, Qantas back to Winton just because that's where it was bought. <laughs> so what's going to happen to the Olympic Stadium? Because they thought they were going to get a closed roof. Yeah, they did. And that's still very much in the never-never. That's going to cost a lot of money too. And Volandi's made it clear today, after all, he seems to run New South Wales at the moment, he says that'll be a separate budget issue, that it's not going to come out of the $800 million allocated to the other parks that I've mentioned. So if we need... We do need a retractable roof. It was mm. short-sighted not to have it in the first place mm. because live events want that certainty of well, weather protection. That, I mean, on that rugby women's and men's World Cup... Uh, they will be played there anyway, retractable roof or not. Uh, the announcement's going to be brought forward till today week. It is, yes, May 12. So that's a very important announcement for Rugby Australia, who nearly went broke. They nearly had to turn amateur again. Last time they held the World Cup, they made $40 million and they'll be hoping for a bigger windfall this time. Mm, absolutely. Just on rugby, I must say, my assistant Grand Slam coach, Alec Evans, has just been made a life member of Rugby Australia. None is more worthy, but in an extraordinary story, he was asked to be a guest at last week's match in Queensland between the Reds and Waikato. Alex was in the box, very comfortable, and after the game, a lot of young players wanted to shake his hand because he's a legend, one of the greats. Now, I have to say, at the end of the day, what happened? Um, they shook his hand and broke, his, <laughs> and broke the bones in his hand. So, Alex, get better. He's watching us in hospital. And much loved in Queensland. He's a, he's a legend of Absolutely. rugby. Absolutely. Off yes, you go, yes, Cam. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you know what a jack jumper is? Jack Jumper's an ant. <laughs> well, well, OK, you, you got me, because I had to look it up. But uh, isn't it amazing that the Jack Jumpers from Tasmania are into the NBL final series in their very first year yeah. of incorporation? Fantastic job. They play the Kings. It all starts on Friday at Kudos Arena. Best of three series. Yep. Uh, also, I thought you might be interested in hearing from Chris Waller, because I know he's a dear friend of yours. Yeah. I've never heard him so excited about a horse. This is what he said yesterday morning when Nature strip came back from track work. Chris, all good? Yeah, really good. Really good. Yes, safely good. Well. How good? Stewie How was wrapped with them the other day, Saturday, and James very happy. He's going great. He's in he's <laughs> tip top. He's ready to go. <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> a lovely man. We, we never saw that with Winks because he was no. always so terribly concerned that she was going to eventually lose a race, and of course she didn't. But, uh, but it's great to see him enjoying Nature Strip and the big adventure that that horse and Home Affairs, the young colt, are going to take him on. They're going to go over to England, try to beat the world's best in the King's Stand, a Group 1 race over 1,000 metres, and then what is now the Platinum Jubilee. We've had the Gold, we've had the Diamond, now the Platinum Jubilee sprint over 1,200 metres. Schwarzier won them both. And he told me that there is a slight chance Nature Strip will attempt to do yeah. the double as well. And just on the Chris Waller stable, very elegant, won't be going to France for the Arc de Triomphe, and he'll prepare her, the Melbourne Cup winner, for the spring campaign. I think that's right, isn't it? I, I think so. Look, it'll be interesting to see what Very Elegant does, because it does take a lot out of the very best horses, and there's no arguing she's right up there 
that when they run and win a Melbourne Cup, it's very hard to get them going again. And I think he's erring on the side of conservative nature there. Yeah, it's also very hard to take your horse to the other side of the world and win, isn't it? It is. Very difficult. I mean, the whole settling in period, they're going to leave early in June with Nature Strip and Home Affairs. Hit and run mission, bring them both back for the Everest. Yeah, just on Nature Strip, by the way, Nature Strip will have a 900 metre barrier trial at Rose Hill tomorrow. Cam? Yes, indeed. Now, Alan, I, look, I know that you've got, uh, you know, a, a, a broad knowledge of football, but how much would you pay for the shirt that Maradona wore in 1986 when he knocked England out of the quarterfinals of the World Cup? No the idea. Hand of God shirt. No he idea. Sa he said later after this infamous goal that it was partially the hand of God and partially the head of Maradona, but... I don't think there was any head involved at all because it's all Mara, it's all the hand of God. <laughs> of course, he scored another brilliant goal. Argentina wins 2-1 and it nearly ignited the Falklands War all over again. Yes, and how much? $12.5 million. It's the most expensive piece of memorabilia ever for auctioned. Shirt. For a shirt. And the windfall goes to the bloke that no one knows his name anymore. He was playing for England. He just happened to swap shirts with Maradona on the day. He <laughs> kept it. Oh, now he's a very, very wealthy man. <laughs> when, when was this auction? Uh, just today. It, just today. So it's, it's one of those stories that I think resonates with a lot of people because Maradona had one of the most amazing careers, as you know. Hang on. You've said it too quickly. $12.5 for a soccer shirt. For a soccer shirt. Still slightly sweaty. And, and with, a, with a number on the back that runs in the rain, they just used a glitter sort of glue to put the numbers on. Maradona said later, if it rains, we won't know who we are. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've made your debut on the program, Cam, and you've been outstanding. Well, Thank you so much. There he is, Cameron Williams, and we'll see you next week, Cam. See you next week, Alan. Cameron Williams. Well, before we go, I raised this with Tony Abbott the other night, the seriousness surrounding this Solomon's China Security Pact. The prospect of a Chinese military base in the Solomon Islands is a frightening development. Well, certainly for our region. Tony Abbott was correct, but he labelled this as nothing short of a Chinese invasion of the Solomon Islands, or of the parliament at least. Indeed, David Crow makes the point today that 72% of voters are concerned or very concerned about the agreement. But interestingly, as David Crow points out, the outcome has not driven significant support to the advantage of one side of politics or the other. Put simply, voters aren't buying the argument that the government are all over our national security challenges because, after all, they presided over the submarines debacle. Now, today there was a defence debate at the National Press Club between Peter Dutton, who will be on the show next week, and Labor's Brendan O'Connor. Defence Minister Peter Dutton is doing his very best, having inherited a mess. But the one thing that many Australians are astounded by is how this issue has been dealt with by the Prime Minister and his Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne. If, as the Prime Minister tells us, national security is the sole reason why the Australians should park their vote with the Coalition, why did Prime Minister Morrison not do more to stop this? Surely, if you were warned of this happening, which he was, you'd pick up the phone and call this Prime Minister Sogavare, a very strange gentleman, by the way. And if the deal would risk Australia's national security, it was absolutely vital that the government exhaust all avenues to kibosh the deal. The flight time is four hours. Why not jet off quickly, immediately, and meet Prime Minister Sogavare to show Australians that you take China's expansion seriously? I'll tell you what the punter thinks, and that is that the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister may well have been asleep at the wheel. 
Penny Wong was asked this morning about a parliamentary speech delivered by Sogavare where he suggested the Pacific nation was being threatened with invasion. This wasn't done on her watch, but who can argue with her response when she said, and I quote, Prime Minister Sogavare has his views, Australians have ours. And if I get the opportunity to serve as your foreign minister, I look forward to discussing those views with the Solomons Prime Minister. Quite a lot of the way in which Scott Morrison has dealt with this issue, she said, has surprised me. And this point, we know that we were warned about this. Australia was warned about this in August last year. She said, I don't think Australians see at a political level action being taken that reflects the imperative for Australia to continue to work to be the partner of choice, unquote. Now, I think the punter would agree with those sentiments. The breakdown in relations we have with key players in our region is less than ideal, especially in a world which is more dangerous. So now what do we do? Well, there's a possibility that China will have a military presence less than 2,000 kilometres from the Queensland coastline, or, as Barnaby Joyce calls it, a little Cuba. I think he's right. That's it from me tonight and for this week. Thank you for your company here on ADH TV. See you on Monday night at 8 o'clock. Good night.